Well, I'd like to begin by asking you a question. Who do you look to as an example of faith? Not just faith, but I'm talking about who do you look to as an example of great faith? Is there a specific person that comes to mind? Those who were raised in Christian homes, your parents may have named you after someone who was great in the faith. And oftentimes we'll pick biblical names for our children. Esther, Ruth, Lydia, Mary, Hanny, or just Hannah, not Hanny. Henny, we got a Henny. Um, Hannah are just a, a few examples of women of faith that are common. And then a new trend has started to, to name girls after virtues that we, we see in the Bible or uh, characters of God uh, or reflections of the gospel. Names like grace, faith, mercy, and hope are now more common. And the same is true for boys who are also named for great men of the faith. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah. And then you go over into the New Testament and there's a bunch of them, right? Peter, James, John, and all the apostles. And often we give our children these names because they're a reflection of the great faith, perseverance, and character that we see reflected about that person in Scripture, right? It's an encouragement. And they serve as examples and reminders, which is a good thing. One example of faith that has always stood out to me is, is the life of King David. David is someone I always felt like I could relate to. Just recently, I began to ponder a little bit more as to why. Maybe it was because he was a shepherd of sheep, and I grew up on a farm, as you guys know, in Illinois, and we would on occasionally need to shepherd cows and pigs. Um, I was also the youngest of eight children, and you guys know that uh, David was the youngest of eight brothers. The more I thought about his life, the more intriguing he has become to me. As a young boy, David had a courageous spirit. He demonstrated great bravery as he fought off wild animals to protect his flocks and risk his life against lions and bears. As a young man, he demonstrated great courage of faith when he stood toe-to-toe against the, the giant, right? Goliath, while everyone else stood around and feared and trembled. As a young boy, I was probably more stupid and naive than I was courageous. But I do think that I had a warrior spirit. I think that's actually what drew me to playing sports. I wanted to compete and defeat whoever stood in front of me, whether that was playing basketball or football or whatever sport it was. David was also courageously zealous for God and would trust the Lord no matter what. As I've gotten older, I've appreciated this about him more and more. He persevered in faith and serves as a great example for us to follow. Yet things weren't always easy for David, were they? There were a lot of challenges and trials that he faced in his life. Trials which had him fleeing at times as a fugitive from Saul who was pursuing him. Trying to kill David repeatedly because he knew that David was going to become king of Israel. 
And as a result, David spent many sleepless nights hiding in different places, in caverns, walking around, looking over his shoulder as if Saul were behind him. And even after becoming the king of Israel, the trials continued. And some of them were self-inflicted as David suffered the consequences of his adultery with Bathsheba, suffered the consequences of his plotted death of um, her husband Uriah, along with the sin-infected and broken relationships in the royal family, which plagued his life. The Lord used trials to test David's faith and also allowed him to feel the weight of the consequences of his sin. And just like David, we are often dealing with the consequences of our sinful choices. Or we're feeling um, the weight of a trial because God is trying to test and grow our faith. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's during these times when we can begin to have doubts and our faith can be challenged. We may even be tempted to doubt the goodness of God because of what we're experiencing. Trials can lead to temptations. Temptations can lead to doubt. And when we begin to doubt God's goodness, that's when guilty fears and insecurities start to creep in. And it's at these low points where David's life and testimony can serve as a great example for us. When life is difficult, where do you instinctively go? What do you think about first? Where do you look? We all look to someone or something when life gets hard. How did David respond? Who or what did David turn to? Let's read Psalm 16 together to find out. David writes, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Well, it is a zealous task to take on this entire psalm and to cover it in one message. But that's exactly what we're going to attempt to do. And we're going to pray and ask God uh, to bless us with efficiency and um, clarity as we study. Please join me. Father, we thank you.
again for the incredible privilege that we have to rally around your scripture. And we ask now, as we hold up the mirror of the text, that you would allow us to see with greater clarity who you are and reveal yourself to us in greater capacity. We thank you for the gift of Christ. We thank you for his teaching. We thank you for the reality of the Old Testament that pointed us to him. And yet there are great lessons for us to learn as we read through the Psalms. And I pray that you would allow us to be encouraged and blessed by what we study today. We commit this time to you, asking that you would affirm it in every single way. Amen. Well, before we begin, you may notice underneath your psalm, beneath the heading of the psalm, there's a little uh, subscript there that says, A Mictum of David. And Psalms 56 through 60 also include this subscript. And just being honest, there's no clear definition of what a miktam is. Some have defined it as a contemplative poem. Others have defined it as a silent prayer. Luther defined a miktam as a golden jewel. The Latin Vulgate translation interpreted the word as humble or blameless. One recent explanation was found in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which simply calls it inscription. The truth is that we don't have a clear definition of a miktam. But what we do know for sure is that David is the one who wrote it. And throughout Psalm 16, there are four comforting realities that help David to overcome his doubts and his fears. They helped him to persevere in faith. And likewise, these realities can minister to us. They can comfort us so that your heart and mine can also find hope and confidence in the Lord during times of adversity. The first comforting reality comes in verses 1 and 2. When in doubt, look up at God's person. And there's going to be fill in, fill in the blanks and we're going to go ahead and just keep that outline up for you. And um, our, our man Paul is going to go ahead and, and um, let you know what those, those blanks reflect. Okay? Look up at God's person. This first reality is critical. And looking up to God was David's only starting place. And you'll notice that, that I titled the message, When in Doubt, Look Up. It's been my experience that whenever I face adversity, that oftentimes I don't look up. I look in. I try to figure out how I can solve the, the, the troubles of the day. How I can um, manipulate sometimes and navigate and do things in my own strength. I've shared this before. And then when I fail or I hit a roadblock, it forces me to look up. You can almost picture a cartoon. I used to watch Tom and Jerry growing up. We all have those images in the mind where they're just running all of a sudden super fast and then splat, right? They hit a wall or an obstacle and they go back. And they fall down. And where are they looking? They're looking up. And the goal isn't to look up to see how big the obstacle or the wall is of our circumstances but to look up to the Lord to see how big our God is. This is what David did 
as he looks up to God and he begins with a simple prayer. He says, preserve me. Or your translation might say, keep or watch over. It's a petition of protection in every way. His prayer was based on faith, not on doubt. And we can see this embedded in the names that he used to address God and who he saw when he looked up. First, he said, preserve me, O God. And God is the translation of the Hebrew word El. And El reveals God's almightiness and power. And often in Hebrew, it's combined with Shaddai. El Shaddai means almighty God or all-sufficient God. Its breadth covers the entire Bible. It is first used in Genesis 17.1 and last used in Revelation 19.15 in its Greek form. And it's saying this, In God all fullness dwells, and out of his constant fullness his own receive all things. This is who David saw when he looked up in prayer. It is the same almighty God that we should look up to when in doubt or going through adversity. It is the same almighty God that John and Clara Lee looked up to when their son Caleb was born with high drops and in a critical condition. The God they looked to when there were no more answers medically. Nothing more could be done. This is who we look to. The one who can do that which no one else can do. When in doubt, look up. When David looked up, he saw El Shaddai. And he also saw the Lord. Look at the beginning of verse 2 where he says, I said to the Lord, and notice that it's in all caps. You guys are a well-taught group. You know that whenever it's in all caps, that this is a reflection of the Hebrew word Yahweh, meaning covenant God. It reflects the personal relationship that Israel's covenant God has with his people. David knew that not only was God powerful, but that God was personal. He knows the details of each of our lives. And David knew this better than anyone because he was led by the Holy Spirit to record Psalm 139. Another favorite psalm. There David again starts that psalm by addressing Yahweh before describing the Lord's personal omnipotence, his his all-powerful nature, his omniscience, his all-knowing nature in our lives. In Psalm 139.3, David wrote that Yahweh was intimately acquainted with all of his ways. And every detail of David's life was known fully by God. When in doubt, David not only looks up to see an all-powerful God, but he looks up to see an all-personal God. A God who never breaks his promises. A God who promises never to leave us nor forsake us. And we hear those truths regularly and we can almost just take them for granted, can't we? But think about it. And we saw a reflection of this just 
in, as we studied the, the end of Romans chapter 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. David saw a God who will preserve and protect believers through the trials and adversity that he and we would face in this life. And notice the emphasis. Yahweh will preserve and protect us through trials. Through adversity, not from trials or from adversity. As New Testament believers, we have a a greater insight knowing the promise of Romans 8.28, a favorite of many, which affirms that God causes all things to work together for good for those who what? Love him and those who are called according to his purpose. When in doubt, David looked up to see a powerful God, a personal God, and thirdly, a preeminent God. Personal, powerful, preeminent. Notice what he says in the middle of verse 2. I said to the Lord. And now you'll notice that it is a, the only capital letter is the first letter. And the rest of it is all in lower case. And this reflects the Hebrew word Adonai, which means sovereign or master. And by using this address, David acknowledges that nothing is outside God's jurisdiction. Absolutely nothing is outside the realm of his sovereignty. And what is the significance of all three of these titles? David saw a big God when he looked up. A big God. Recently, Victoria and I had the opportunity to go to the movies. And she loves movies. And me, kind of, sort of, depends on the genre. I probably get bored a little bit faster than, than she does. Give me a good football game and I'll analyze it, every, every play. Um, stick me in a, a, a chick flick in a movie theater and I'll have to persevere, okay? But what was cool about this movie is that it was in 3D, 3D movies have come a long way, by, by the way. I, I, the, I can't remember the last time I saw a movie in 3D. And you remember the flimsy paper um, glasses that you could barely see through, and the effects were awful. And now it's like, man, it's state of the art. Have any of you been to a 3D movie recently? Just r- r- raise your hand. Oh, yeah, everyone's like, Look, should we raise our hand? Do we go to the movies? No, you're at home reading your Bibles and praying. You didn't go to the movies. Rebuke you after. How could you? How could you? No. But now you go to the 3D uh, movie theater and you get these nice set of glasses, right? And it's incredible the effects that we see. And let me just say the 3D impact of this movie made it come alive. In fact, there were times where I would take off my 3D glasses just to see Um, the the difference in depth perception. Absolutely incredible. And when David prayed and he looked up to God, he saw him alive in 3D. He saw that he was incredibly powerful. He saw that he was deeply personal. And he certainly saw that God was preeminent. How big is the God that you and I pray to? 
Is he only one dimensional? From your perspective, do you and I see the same God that David saw when he looked up and prayed with such confidence? Or do you see a small God? Do you think his power is limited? Perhaps you might even be tempted to think sometimes that he's impersonal. Has his preeminence captured your heart and mind? A small God will lead to small prayers. And it will reveal a small faith. A big God will lead to big prayers. And you will come to him trusting him. In fact, it's been said you never test the resources of God until you pray for or attempt the impossible. Him doing what only he can do. In Psalm 16, David was so overwhelmed by the goodness and magnitude of God that it led him to this humbling reality. Look at the end of verse 2. David says, I have no good besides you. Literally, my good is not beyond you is what it's saying. Like the prophet Isaiah, David was undone when he saw God for who he was, even in the midst of his prayer. Any goodness in his life could only be reflected back to the Lord's faithfulness to him. And this paves the way for the remaining realities that we're going to see in this psalm. When in doubt, look up to God's person. And the second comforting reality comes in verses 3 and 4. When in doubt, look around at God's people. After looking up, then David looks around. He saw two different types of people. First, faithful followers in verse 3. And then faithful fools in verse 4. Let's talk about verse 3 first. The word saints literally means holy ones. And it's David's reference to the faithful Israelites and the worshiping community that he identified himself with. Not in a spirit of pride, but in a spirit of faith. Like David, these majestic ones were the ones who saw God for who he is. And this was the primary source of their fellowship. He didn't just identify them. He delighted in them. He enjoyed their company. Listen to what James Montgomery Boyce says about verse 3. Quote, this is a practical matter, for it is a way by which we can measure our relationship to the Lord. Do you love other believers? Do you find it good and rewarding to be with them? Do you seek their company? This is a simple test. Those who love the Lord will love the company of those who also love him. Those who find their good in God will also find good in those who likewise seek him. Again, do you find it uncomfortable to be with those who sin openly? Are you troubled by their values, shocked by their desires, repulsed by their blasphemies? Or are you at ease among them? If, like Peter, you have no difficulty warming your hands at the fire of those who are hostile to your master, it is because you are far from him. You had best get back to him before you deny him, as Peter did. End quote. Of course, Boyce is referring to Peter when he was denying the gospel and associating with uh, the Judaizers in Galatians. And this may not seem much like a comforting reality, but it should be. When you desire fellowship with God's people, 
and are engaged in meaningful spiritual relationships, this is the testimony of God's work in your life. God provides you with other believers. He provides me with the fellowship of other believers, just like he did with David, so that we can encourage each other. And we need each other, don't we? We need each other. We go to care group because oftentimes we're broken. We're tired. We're, it's been a long week. Or maybe it's midweek and the week's not over. I, I need some encouragement. And so we go. And Hebrews 3.13 says, But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And in that context, in Hebrews 3.13, it's referring to the peril of unbelief, which is appropriate for us as we consider verse 4. David appreciated those who were faithful followers because it provided a testimony, again, of God's work in and through them. Yet on the flip side, David also despised faithless fools. Verse 4 says, The sorrows of those who have bartered for another god will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. What is this all about? You read that and you're just like, okay, drinking. Um, what were they sacrificing? Well, Psalm 106, and I invite you to turn there, tells the story of Israel's rebellion in graphic detail. God had warned Israel about mingling with other nations and the devastating consequences. And I wish we had time to read the psalm in its entirety, but for now we'll just have to read just a few verses. Look down at verse 35. And it says, But they, Israel, mingled with the nations and learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with the blood. Thus they became unclean in their practices and played the harlot in their deeds. This is mind-boggling to consider. And David, along with the Lord, was absolutely disgusted. And David's disdain was so strong that he even refused to mention these deities by name. He didn't even want them... To, to, to enter his thinking or to touch his lips. Imagine the sorrows of those who were misled to make such sacrifices once they were confronted by the truth. Like a malignant cancer, their sorrows would just keep multiplying, sorrow upon sorrow. That, that's hard for us to even contemplate. I can't. I mean, just that you would be misled to such an extreme that you would kill um, one of your own children. John Calvin had this to say, Unbelievers who honor false gods by offering them gifts not only lose what is thus expended, but also heap for themselves sorrows upon sorrows 
provoking the wrath of God against themselves, and thus continually increase the amount of their miseries. The, the, the comforting reality that we get from Psalm 16 is for us to stay as well-connected to faithful followers as we can so that we have no fears or we have no worries about being misled by the, by the faithless fools. It's true. Another reminder, the, the blessing of the church, the ministry of the church, the body of protection that the Lord provides. When in doubt, look up to God's person. When in doubt, look around at God's people. And the third comforting reality, when in doubt, look back at God's providence. Now, providence is a term that is often misunderstood. So I did, did my homework and I tried to find what I believe is a, a, a strong definition for us. And thank you, Paul, for pulling that up. And we can go ahead and you can read it along with me. Providence is normally defined in Christian theology as the unceasing activity of the creator, whereby in overflowing bounty and goodwill, he upholds his creatures in ordered existence, guides and governs all events, circumstances and acts of angels and men and directs everything to its appointed goal for his own glory that's lengthy but it should be because providence involves so much there's a full scope of really which everything to some degree falls underneath the doctrine of God's providence this is really a solid working definition for us well, now what we see in verses 5 through 9 are some of the results of providence that David looked back upon. First, providence sustains. David could look back upon his life and see how God sustained him. The words portion and cup are metaphors for sustenance. The word portion can have two different meanings. It can refer to one's portion in the land, such as one's estate or inheritance, or it can refer to one's daily portion of food or a ration. And since it's linked to the word cup in verse 5, and since the idea of inheritance in the, in the land occurs in the next verse, portion here in verse 5 is most likely referring to David's daily portion of food or other necessities. This is what we ask for when we pray the Lord's Prayer, as we were instructed by the Lord. Give us this day our daily bread. It means that we're looking to God for our sustaining provisions. And David lived this reality out firsthand, and we see an example of this when he ate the loaves of consecrated bread back in 1 Samuel 21, when he and his countrymen were starving. He could also look back to the times when he was fleeing Saul and God sustained him while he was cold and hungry when hiding inside of the caves. God's sustaining providence was very real to him. He concludes verse 5 by saying, you support my lot, or you hold my lot in the ESV, which again is David recognizing God for the sustaining portions that God has allotted to him. Another result of sustaining providence is seen in verse 6, 
when David uses another metaphor. This one speaks of the land, as I already alluded to. God's providence sustained Israel with lines or boundaries of land, and David was able to look back and see God's hand in this as well. And if there's a running theme in these verses, at least one that came to mind as I studied the passage, it is David's contentment in the Lord. And we know this, being discontent is one of the most common characteristics of our American culture. We know this. And the danger of discontentment is that it constantly has us searching and looking for something more and more and more. But when we're focused on the Lord and we're content, this has us focus on the reality of all that He's already given to us, all that He's provided. And this is fitting for us to think about coming on the heels of Thanksgiving and on Christmas, right? Christmas approaching in just three weeks. How ironic, and you've, maybe you've thought about this, maybe you haven't, that Black Friday is literally the biggest shopping day of the year is the day after Thanksgiving. Have you ever thought about the irony of that? Maybe you've even seen um, one of the memes that I found, Black Friday Because only in America, people trample over others for sales exactly one day after being thankful for what they already have. (laughs) And the same thing can be said for all the Christmas stampedes that are going to take place. And I would just encourage my heart, my heart, I'm not talking to you, but you can overhear the conversation that I'm about to have with myself. John, what more do you really need? What more do you really need? Someone once wisely said, there's no greater gift at Christmas than to have everything you want before you open up your presents. follow that one no greater gift than to have everything that you could possibly want before you even open up one gift and to understand the 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 reality of that statement is true and unless we're content with the lord you're constantly searching and this is what the world entices us and throws the sails up and convinces to put things in supersize and everyone's got one of these you guys know this already You know this. And the only way to fight against that is if your heart is born again. If God has given you new desires to not live for the things of this world. He's changed your heart to realize the lies of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the lust of pride. He changes the heart. Are you born again? Has God changed your heart? Have you come to him and fallen on your face and recognized, as David did, that I have no good besides you, God? And I am a sinner. And that one sin, any one sin, is enough imperfection to keep me out of your presence. And that Jesus Christ came and died and paid the penalty 
for my sin. If I turn and I repent of my unbelief and I turn and trust in him as my Savior and Lord, has your heart been changed to have new desires? It will help you understand God's providence spiritually. David looked back to see that God's providence sustains. He also looked back to see that providence instructs. Look at verse 7. David writes, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. David needed counsel as the king of Israel. Think about it. His official decisions affected an entire nation. No pressure there. And not just any nation, but God's chosen people. He needed counsel that he could trust. And so do we. And our decisions may not affect as many people as David's did, but the reality is that that they still influence others, and they still have an impact. Do you and I turn to the Lord for counsel? Who disciples you and guides you when making the most important, life-changing and life-impacting decisions that you're going to make? Take comfort in the fact that God's word provides counsel that we need. And God also provides the church and the ministry of other spirit-led believers with an endless supply of counsel. David cherished God's counsel, even during hard times. And it was the prophet Nathan that you'll recall uh, in 2 Samuel 12 that came and rebuked David because of his sin, right? You remember that with Bathsheba? Nathan was used by the Lord, sent by the Lord to, to share the message directly with him. And I would imagine it was hard for David to hear at first. But even David would celebrate that it led to his repentance and it led to him recording Psalms 32 and 51. How encouraging it is for us to look back like David to see how the Lord rescued our marriage or rescued a broken relationship through the power of the gospel and the ministry of his word. God's providence sustains God's providence instructs. And thirdly, God's providence secures. Verses 8 and 9 provide a capstone for us as we look back at God's faithfulness. David expresses it this way. I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. David understood that the greatest aspect of God's providence was the security that it provides. The Lord was his stronghold, his salvation. The Lord was David's fortress of protection as he looked back on his life. And that's a strong word. We don't hear it often because nobody builds fortresses. Our kids build forts, right, at our house. But when you think about a bunker or a fortress... In the military, 
They were life-saving when sniper fire and all the things, and those who have served in our military, thank you, thank you for the willingness to, to sacrifice your life for the sake of other people. No greater love, 1 John 3.16. But when you see a fortress and a fortress of protection, what a good picture for us, to, a lasting image for us to keep in our mind. That is what the Lord is for us. And David's security was from the inside out. Verse 9 reveals David's heart and entire inner being, literally his kidneys. You might even see that over on one of the cross-references. That's what it's saying. It's his entire inner being rejoiced and felt secure. And so did his flesh and his physical person. Again, these same comforting realities are here for us whenever we find ourselves drowning in adversity or doubting the goodness of God or feeling overwhelmed. I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. And you're exactly right. You can't by divine design. And the Lord wants you, when you doubt like that, to look up. To see his providence. To see his hand of faithfulness that is ready to take you and lead you through whatever difficult storm you might face. And I I, honestly, there are people who are just jumping into my mind right now. Who have been blessed and have seen the faithful hand of the Lord Lead them. And it's such an encouragement. When in doubt, look up to God's person. When in doubt, look around at God's people. When in doubt, look back at God's providence. And the fourth and final comforting reality, which will be our conclusion found in Psalm 16, is when in doubt, look ahead to God's promises. The final two verses of Psalm 16 are filled with comfort and hope. As David looked ahead to God's promises. First the promise of resurrection in verse 10. And then the promise of eternal life in verse 11. Verse 10 says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Sheol in this verse means the pit or grave. David knew that life did not end there. And here, David affirms the basis of his confidence in the comforting reality of the resurrection in two specific ways. First, he applies it to his person. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. David knew, as all saints have known, that God did not establish a covenant with him and provide for him and carry him all the way through his life only to abandon him at the end of it. You could be tempted to think that. David knew that God would not abandon him in the moment of his greatest need. And I don't know where your heart is on when you think about taking your last breath, but there's something surreal about that for me. I wonder what it's going to be like. I wonder what that threshold is going to be like. And I need this psalm. I need this to comfort my heart that God is not going to abandon me. And to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. David knew that he could trust the Lord as a refuge in every area. And so why not in the ultimate area? 
And then he applies the promise of the resurrection to Christ when he says, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And if you're using the New American Standard translation, you'll notice that you and your, along with Holy One, are all capitalized due to the messianic implication, as they should be. How can we be certain that David was pointing to Christ in this verse? Acts 2, 25-31, and Acts 13, 35 through 37 quote this exact passage and interpret it to explain the resurrection of Jesus. Now, to what degree that David fully understood the resurrection, that's been subject to much debate. But the reality is he saw something as he looked forward. And he knew he was a man of faith. You may recall when... um, David stopped mourning back in 2 Samuel chapter 12 after um, his baby was dying, that he had the offspring with Bathsheba, right? And he was mourning and weeping and sackcloth and ashes. And then once the baby died, guess what? He, he, stopped, he stopped weeping. He stopped mourning. And they're like, why? And David was like, because I know that I'm going to go to him. I'm, I'll, I'll see him again. <laughs> Is that not incredible faith? It was right there. Absolutely incredible. And not only did David celebrate and look ahead to the promise of the resurrection, but verse 11 reveals that he also looked ahead to eternal life. And this, without question, is not only one of my favorite psalms in all the scripture, but now we get to the end, and this is my favorite verse. Verse 11, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Amid hardship and trials in this life, David clung to the reality and the promise of eternal life. David understood that being a man of faith put him on a very special path that ends in a very special place, God's presence. What will we find there? God will be there in absolute fullness. And in his presence will be fullness of joy. And as I've shared in the past, I'm, you know, we've had a lot of joyful things. We look back to the birth of our children. We look back to uh, maybe marriage or, or, or some event or graduation, whatever it might be, where you're at in your life stage. Nothing can compare It will eclipse every single joy. It will be the combination and magnified in the same degree that it was sorrows upon sorrows for those who have rejected. For those who believe, it will be joy upon joy being multiplied. Pleasures forevermore coming to us straight from the palm of his hand. What a comforting reality to close out this incredible song and to close out our time. Allow me to read this quote as we close. As saints face the trials and troubles of this life, they must be absolutely sure of the goodness of God who remains faithful to his people, even in spite of their failures. They may build this kind of confidence like the psalmist did, by studying God's word with a new interest and purpose, by meditating on his goodness and guidance in the night seasons by focusing on his grace 
and glory that he shares with his saints whom he eternally loves by cultivating a life of obedience inspired by setting him always before them, by determining to remain loyal to him in the face of competing religious ideas and by praising him more for all his care and guidance. Then they will be able to pray with confidence, knowing that nothing, absolutely nothing, neither death nor life nor any power will be able to separate them from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Which, if you were here last week, I know sounds very familiar. And thus the Lord directed me to to preach this psalm. At the beginning of the message, I asked you this question. Who do you look to as an example of great faith? Is there a specific person that comes to mind? And it's my hope that after our study this morning, that if you ever find yourself in a place of doubt or challenged with adversity in your walk, that David and Psalm 16 will come to mind and will bring you great comfort. Remember, when in doubt, pray with me. Father, we rejoice in you. Our treasure is you. Your word is to put you on display. And we praise you this morning for Psalm 16 and the opportunity just to reflect and see the reality of your goodness, your providence, all the things that allow us to know you and love you. We thank you for your faithfulness in the life of King David. We thank you for the example that we have, how you led him to persevere and to to have victory over the trials that he faced in his life. And we're thankful that you, we are on your side, that you have graciously allowed us to stand firm with you and not be shaken in this life, and that anything that gets brought our way, anything, that we can turn to you in a moment and find comfort. And Father, I repent of all the times where I have not done that. And I imagine I'm not alone. And we just pray, Father, that you would continue to allow us to meditate on these reality, on these realities, that we can be encouraged in great measure. That we can be blessed by the example of David. And that in turn, as we focus on these realities and apply them to our lives, that we might actually be able to serve as the example that somebody else thinks of. We pray that that's your will for each of our lives. We thank you again for this time. We commit the remainder of this morning to you in Jesus' name. Amen.